It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Gary Cohen, CEO of Qualiter Automotive. Qualiter is a leading diversified supplier of aftermarket safety and wear parts for the automotive industry. Prior to Qualiter, Gary was president and CEO of Timex Group, a global manufacturer of watches where he made significant improvements in expanding revenues of key product lines. Prior to joining Timex, Gary had several senior level executive positions at Playtex, Procter & Gamble, and the Gillette Company, each increasing in scale, scope of responsibility, and complexity. Gary and his wife, Carolyn, have four daughters and reside in Westport, Connecticut. Gary Cohen, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Nice to be on. Great to have you here. And we always kind of like to get started at the beginning. You've had a wonderful career and, and lots of corner office experience. And I'm sure our guests are looking forward to hearing about that. But uh, let's start in the early days. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in the immediate suburbs of Boston a fairly blue-collar town, uh, modest means growing up. I'm a product of public schools. I'm the oldest of three kids. And uh, interestingly, my mom still lives in the house that wow. I was born in. No kidding. Gosh, yeah. both mom and dad worked or mom worked from the home? Uh, mom worked from the home until high school. And uh, yeah. I actually worked in her office uh, during high school. Uh, my dad uh, worked... Uh, the entire time, you know, was, uh, my dad actually was a Navy pilot at the end of the oh, Korean War. Cool. And um, he was very analytical and uh, very focused on data. Uh, pilots back in the day uh, used slide rules. They didn't have a lot yeah. of uh, yeah. automatic equipment. And, and so I got a lot of my data focused and analytical, you know, uh, framework from him. Did mom and dad go to college? Uh, mom did not. And dad yeah. went to college uh, before yeah. he went into the uh, Navy uh, right at the end of the Korean War. Right, right. So when you were growing up, was he still a vet and uh, you know, in, in active service, or, or uh, did he get into business after uh, his, his naval career? No, he got into business after his naval career. In fact, he was a statistician oh. and worked on many startup companies in the 70s. Back then, Route 128 in Boston was the a precursor to Silicon Valley. Right, so he worked right. Deck, with a lot of digital equipment was a big yeah. And he worked with a lot of small high tech companies, you know, many of them supporting the uh, aeronautics um, industry. industry yeah. And, you know, probably the major impact on my career from that is 
he was laid off several times because he worked mm. for a lot of these small high flyer companies. Right. Right. And then after probably getting laid off the third time and having to support a family of three kids, he decided to pivot and go into a much more um, larger company role with Blue Cross Blue Shield as an actuary. Right. So, yeah. you know, his focus to me was always like, get a stable job, you know, work <laughs> for a large company. And naturally, I did just the opposite when I graduated college. But, you know, <laughs> it, it definitely had an impact on me. What other kind of early lessons did mom and dad share with you growing up? Uh, you know, family values were were really important to us. I had I was fortunate that uh, I had four grandparents, two great grandmothers. They all lived in wow. the same street. So we were cool. definitely a, a throwback um, yeah. you know, to the old days. But I learned a lot about family values. Every Sunday, we had to visit both sets of grandparents. Yeah. So that was instilled in me in our early, early time. Yeah. What kind of your early influences other than, you know, hard work and, and family values? My father, because he was so focused on statistics and analytics, yeah. I would always, you know, I became a good math uh, person because of that. But whenever yeah. I asked my dad for help on math homework, uh, he was just so analytical focused. He had to go back to the Pythagorean theorem to explain every homework <laughs> assignment. And so, you know, nowadays when I'm sitting in a presentation and somebody shows me a lot of data, while, I, while I'm hungry for it, I can't stand if somebody shows me a spreadsheet that has way too much data. I always think back to my right. time when my father just overwhelmed me with, you know, too much information. So yeah. I, yeah. I can, I can uh, definitely, you know, throw people off because while I'm data focused, I really would much prefer to just get key messages and highlights <laughs> from, from the data. Makes good sense. Were you a good student in school, Gary? Yeah, you know, I was okay. I was a, a B plus student. I think right. most of my early days were focused on hard work and um, sweat equity and, and yeah. perseverance more than anything else. And what about outside activities, sports, music, theater, debate? What, what kind of things do you participate in? I love sports. I was a soccer captain uh, in high school, yearbook editor. I was involved in a lot oh. of clubs. And, and for me, it was, it was all about being involved. Um, yeah. That's really where I got a lot of my energy. More of a social standpoint, is that kind of a or social perspective? Is that, is that what you... I've always thrived on you know, building a network, and we can talk yeah. about that later in the conversation. But I think yeah. early days, it was really just about making solid friendships and being a part of the community. I did work back in high school, and I actually bought my first stereo in ninth grade from all the <laughs> money that I made from, from working. So early, sure. early on, I always had this relationship with uh, working, having money in the bank, and, and trying to figure out a way to, to spend it and save it at the same time. Do you have one of those savings accounts where every time you would go in, they'd print it out and they'd show the interest grow and so forth? Yeah, I did. In fact, that, you know, I explained <laughs> We're that to dating ourselves, right? We're dating uh, ourselves, Gary. Yeah, the, pa the passport. The, the, the passport, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a motivator, it my, wasn't it? Yeah, and I explained it to my kids and they just have no idea what I'm talking That's, about. What are you talking about? Yeah, but you didn't yeah. have online then? <laughs> well, first of all, interest rates were a little higher then. You know, I well, think we're getting true. back to those days, but yeah. like... Yeah. The last 10 years, like you weren't getting, you, you don't get interest on any money. So even trying right. to explain that to, to a kid is, is, you know, a foreign language. <laughs> exactly. So you mentioned you had a lot of jobs. What, any entrepreneurial things you did as a, as a kid? Did you start with a paper route and, you know, sell Christmas cards at Christmas time or other types of stuff? Or did you go more for, you know, retail minimum wage types of jobs? Actually, my first job in, in high school was an office job working in my mom's office. Back in the day when 
used to have to uh, put cards into computers to, to get them to read sure. out. So I used to sort <laughs> these cards in, in IBM mini computers. And, you know, in, a, in some weird way, I, both I made money, but that actually led to my first job out of college. You know, I, I was always just focused on making money, but, you know, just being in the right place at the right time didn't hurt either. But it sounds like you're you're a good saver, but you had to have some vices in high school. What what did you spend your money on? Uh, as I said, you know, audio equipment and uh, audio. and record albums. Yeah, yeah, good music collection. What was your favorite music back then? Uh, I, I had a pretty eclectic taste, so you know, it, it ranged from the Eagles to Bruce Springsteen to even you know a lot to uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. So yeah. uh, to me, I, I had a pretty broad range of of tastes, and you know, just whenever there was an album that came out that I liked, I went and bought it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you went on to Brandeis University, right? Did your undergrad. Tell us about the choice uh, in going there. Was that kind of a natural selection for you? Did you take a look at a broad range? I know you ended up studying economics. Brandeis was pretty close to home. Um, yeah. They had a, an amazing soccer program. They, they had just won the national championship in Division Three. Exactly. So I, I was recruited by the the coach. And, you know, oh, awesome. when I showed up, it, it just, you know, became a natural fit for me. I never wound up breaking the the, the starting lineup. I mean, the team was amazing, yeah. but it did break into a whole new network for me. So, you know, I always had the social network of the, the sports teams, plus a lot of friends that I made through other channels. And, uh, you know, to this day, I, I maintain a lot of those friendships. Did you play uh, soccer all the way through high school? Was that uh, your, your varsity sport, so to speak? Yeah, that was my varsity sport. I also ran track, but, but soccer was definitely my, my yeah. passion. And I wound up playing, interestingly, even after college with a lot of the guys that I met through college and, and through the network that I had in the Boston area. Cool. How'd you pick economics? Did you kind of have that business inkling, in, inkling and decide that's the way you wanted to go? Or, you know, was there something that fascinated you back to the, you know, the days of your dad sharing, you know, slide rule presentations? So. Well, because I had two grandmothers and two great grandmothers uh, where I grew up, uh, you know, it was expected that, that I was going to be a doctor as the uh, oldest, as the oldest child. And, you know, when I went into Brandeis, I realized that that really probably wasn't going to be in the cards. I, I definitely gravitated towards economics more just because of the interest. But I have to right. say the, the, the my favorite classes were the ones where there were, you know, where I had to take requirements in other areas. So mm. um, as much as economics influenced where I went to business school and my future career, um, yeah. the classes in art history, theater, blues, the, the history of the 50s and 60s had as much of a impact on me is anything else. And I'm still a history buff to this day because of some of the courses that I took in college. What was that first job you took coming on Brandeis? Um, well, in, you know, back in the early eighties, when I was looking for a job, the, the economy wasn't that robust. And so, mm-hmm. um, I did a lot of networking and interestingly, the, my first job was for a startup software company. Um, oh. the folks that actually worked in my mom's office in high school were, were IBM, uh, you know, salespeople, um, and they went and started their own company, um, wow. selling, uh, selling purchasing software for IBM computers. And so I networked my way in to get a job. Um, they put me through programming school for the first three months. And I quickly realized that, um, I loved the company, but I was not going to be a programmer. <laughs> and, not enough uh, social time there, I think, Gary. Right? No, and, and, you know, I, I knew what I was good at and I knew what I wasn't good at, yeah, but I yeah. just, I, I loved the software and had an affinity for explaining how it worked to people. So I pivoted my way from being a programmer to being a customer service person. So I was okay. actually the first 
customer service person and started an entire group, um, you know, within my first six months of, of working there. For that same organization. Cool. For that same organization. And yeah. I did that for three years before I went to, wow. to business school. So I had a team of people for me, you know, right out of college. And I got to give the, the folks that were running the company a lot of credit for, you know, both giving faith in me, but also just, you know, give me the training that I needed to, to learn how to navigate in, in a fast, you know, moving startup company. And those, those folks that you were leading, were they about the same age? Were they older, younger? You know, was it, was it a mix? It was a mix. I mean, it was a combination yeah. of newly minted college grads because the, the goal of the company then was to get liberal arts folks and train sure. them to, to how to talk to customers and how to be programmers. But then we had a lot of programmers that were five, 10 years my senior. And so um, wow. having a customer service group where people you know, were several years older than me was quite a challenge. So you know, even back then, I had to learn you know, more through influence and you know, being nice to people than you know, I could just by telling people what to do. What were some of those leadership challenges? And, and if you don't mind sharing, maybe some of the mistakes you made in those early days. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the leadership challenges are, you know, uh, I was not a um, I was not a, a, a domain expertise in, in software programming, but a lot of right. folks that I had to, work with, to were, uh, yeah. work with were. So yeah. for me, it was as much earning respect than anything right. else. And, and I learned early days that, you know, I had to gain their respect. Um, I had to have them have a voice because they knew a lot more than mm-hmm. I did about software and, and, and programming. Um, probably the, the, the biggest challenge I had was I actually have, had an Israeli Navy pilot working in our group who was very direct and oh, how to yeah. get him to be much more part of the team and, and to ask questions versus just be direct because of, you know, his culture. So well before it was even in vogue in terms of being inclusive and, and learning how to take, you know, different cultures and integrating them, you know, when later days in Gillette, I mean, that was just part of being a global company, but I had experience of it right out of college. Awesome. Awesome. How did you, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the necessity of uh, leading folks that were, you know, the subject matter experts when you weren't and, and what, what kind of skills did you use? How did you, how did you earn that respect? You know, I, part of it is just being authentic and, and yeah. treating people the way they want to be treated and also, you know, giving them the respect for their knowledge base, but mm-hmm. then, you know, working together to figure out how everybody can contribute to get, to a common goal that, you know, my, my later days in brand management were all about that. But as you know, you're, you're the conductor of the orchestra, but you're not playing. And, and so to be that conductor and get everybody to, to organize and, and, you know, a lot of it was team building activities. A lot of it were, um, you know, regular status updates. And, and a lot of it is really just communication. Yeah. You know, listening, I think we're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Listening and how to get everybody to communicate. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, you went on to Kellogg, Kellogg School at Northwest University. Great, great MBA school. What, what, what kind of triggered that decision? You, you said you kind of knew you were going to get your MBA. Is that right? Did you kind of have it in mind that you'd work for a few years and then go on? Or was there something that you uh, decided in your career, maybe a pivot or what have you, that led you to, to go to MBA school? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, as, as great as my father was in terms of being a mentor for math and data, he wasn't a big company guy. And the, the yeah. area that I grew up in, you know, most people didn't aspire to go to work for large multinational companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brandeis itself was a very, you know, rigorous school, but it, was, it focused more on theory than it did on applied knowledge. That said, I took a economics course 
Um, and one of the subjects, you know, I did, a, I had to do a paper and the paper was the uh, anti-competitive nature of the ready to eat cereal business. Um, they were focusing on how hard it was to get market share, you know, get on a shelf if you weren't one of the big, you know, multinationals. Like and, Kellogg. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, right. like, like Kellogg or, you know, General Mills. And um, so what, what I started to do when I was putting the paper together is like learning about the folks that actually ran these brands. Mm. And, you know, it was all about brand management. So I was yeah. intrigued by this role and I said, that's what I want to do. And mm. you know, then I set myself on, all right, well, if I want to be a brand manager, how do I get there? And yeah. upon a little bit of studying, found out that pretty much everybody needed an MBA. And so I went and got some MBA brochures when I was in Brandeis still. And then I got this brochure from Kellogg that really resonated to me because it was all about marketing, just the way the yeah. school marketed themselves. And it said, you know, if you want to be a brand manager, here's a great place to go. So that mm. was really what led me there. Um, and three years later, I applied and, and got into Kellogg. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Um, but it really was a pivotal moment for me to just understand what brand management was that, and, and that I could actually be good at it based on what I had been doing in my first role and, and what it interested me about it, you know, going forward in terms of being that conductor, that center of the wheel that yeah. you have to lead through influence, you know, versus actually just doing. You started your CPG career at Gillette, which which became Proctor later. We talked about that earlier, and and you know not too many people stay on after a Proctor uh, acquisition. You did, uh, but tell us a little bit about kind of the choice of Gillette. Um, was it kind of part to get back to the Boston area, or I guess you were living there already, right? I mean, you had moved there uh, when you were working for for uh, manage uh, when you were at Marcon. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm Boston born and raised, and uh, Gillette was the big game in town. And at yeah. the time, they had just gone through this major transformation and they were communicating their vision of the best a man can get. They had just started wow. that advertising. And oh, I love Chicago. I think yeah. you know Chicago is a great place to live and, and raise a family. So I looked at jobs in Chicago, New York, and Boston, and I got the Gillette job And just because my family was still in Boston. And I just had this great admiration for what Gillette was doing. Um, you know, it just became a, a natural fit for me. And I loved the hiring team. That, that recruited me. And, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed the, my early stages of my career. And then, you know, even the later stages after Jim Kiltz came in, who turbocharged my career, I, I had almost three different, you know, career paths at Gillette towards wow. the end, but each, each phase was, was better than the rest. Now, uh, Gillette, traditional brand management at the time, is that kind of how they were organized? And, you know, yeah, I mean, of- we d- we definitely were organized by categories, and I had some yeah. great experiences working on razors and blades, and then feminine uh, razors and blades, and then also transitioning that to Oral B. So the end of my career, I was the head of innovation and new products at Oral B, wow. and uh, we doubled the size of that business while I was there, and that was a, a crown jewel in um, in the portfolio when P&G Botulet. Sure. One of the key reasons why they did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Column at the crest business. Terrific. Well, you know, when we spoke a month or two ago, but both you and I are in total alignment with this, you know, building your career on a strong foundation of a big company. And as you know, I started mine at Procter and brand management, not too unlike your path. And, and, you know, looking back at, at those formative years, and you were there almost 20, 18, 18 plus years, if you had to take away, you know, two or three of the key things that you felt that you really benefited from kind of being inside those, those Gillette walls, what, what would those have been? 
Gary? Um, well, definitely the talent at every level. And, mm. you know, everybody talks about, you know, the talent at these companies, especially when they're marketing driven. You know, yeah. everybody looks at the marketing teams. Um, and as you know, whether it kind it's, of promote from within as well, was Gillette the kind of up or out type of thing? Well, you know, it wasn't quite, you know, the, it was an interesting, you know, mix when, when P&G bought Gillette because yeah. they said they were going to take the, the best of both companies. Gillette was a little different. We were a little bit more entrepreneurial. We were willing to hire people that came in yeah, from outside right. the company. Mm-hmm. But by and large, everybody in the marketing career path um, came out of, you know, MBA programs and was groomed right. by, the, by the culture there. Um, I think when Jim Kiltz came in and really did a transformation of the company, he was willing to hire strong talent, many who actually were groomed at P&G, to come back in and take leadership roles. And and I think that mix of both homegrown talent and bringing in talent from the outside was a a key reason why Gillette really took off um, when he was there. Um, But I think the the hidden secret that that, is, is known within the walls of Gillette and then Procter it's just not the marketing talent that makes these companies great. It's they've got the best supply chain people in the world. Yeah. They've got the best HR people in the world. They have Product the best finance people in the world. And, yeah. and a lot of it is that, you know, that broad development and training that you get right. in all the functional right. areas. Yeah, it's funny. I remember someone telling me about halfway through my Procter career that, you know, because everyone says, you know, well, it's such a great marketing company. I say, yeah, pretty good at marketing, but it's basically an excellent P&D company that's got a pretty good marketing arm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, being able to develop those innovative products. I mean, if you think about them, you know, the, the Gillette razors, the Pampers diapers, the oral care products, you know, Crest getting the ADA, you know, John Smale, I think was one of the former CEOs of Procter, but he was the brand manager of Crest that got that ADA endorsement back in the sixties. I mean, just super innovative stuff. And that makes such a difference in that world. So anyway, but back to my question. So the people were key. What, what were two or three of the other things that you felt were really foundational for you during those those first you know eighteen twenty years at, uh, at Gillette. Well, you know, I, I learned a lot about just how to get stuff done, um, yeah. and you know, people take it for granted that you know that not every company knows how to do that. I mean, I you know, if I, if I look back at my my Gillette days and and what influenced me going forward, you know, it is like hiring top talent, uh, making sure that there's strategy and vision that's aligned within the organization and a, and a drive for results. And, um, you know, I think what I learned from, from Jim Kiltz also was don't be afraid to use outside help and advisors. Right. Um, when we were kind of going through our transformation, we had McKinsey and Bain in at the same time, kind of dueling it out on, on projects. But I think, you know, I think my early days at Gillette, we were kind of insular and, mm-hmm. and everybody, you know, really wanted to kind of do things on their own. And, and they were almost afraid to ask for help. And I think uh-huh. that's something that I've taken with me to, to other jobs is, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask mm. your boss for help. It's okay to, to use outside resources. A lot of companies, believe it or not, you know, put walls up and say, we can do it ourselves. Yeah. We don't need to either yeah. spend the money or we don't need outside help. And that, that I think, framework was flipped on its head when I was, you know, in my mm. later days at Gillette. Yeah, yeah, cool. Anything else that you think were real foundational there that benefited you, you know, years and years later as you moved into the corner office? Well, you know, if, as you know, when you're in your first job at product management, brand management, you know, your job is to, you know, work with a lot of different functional areas, bring them together yeah. and get them to work on your project. You're, yeah. you're the, yeah. You are the center of focus of your project, but they all have day jobs and they all have other things to do. <laughs> and in many cases, you know, their, their senior management might help set priorities. But at the end of the day, you have to get them to work on your project. 
Yeah, and that's right. you can you can tell people what to do that are twenty years you know older than you, but that only goes so far. So at the end of the day, it's it's all about persuasion, getting You're to fighting, know people, walking down, yeah, yeah, walking down to their office and right, sitting right. And, and getting to know them, and then you know asking them about who the kids are in their photos. It, yeah. it really, I mean, it's the simple things that I learned you know mm. way back in high school. Is you have to kind of get to know people and get them to know you know get to know them on on a personal level. And that, you know, believe it or not, that goes, that goes a long way. Great stuff, Gary. Yeah, so true. So on to Playtex and, and then eventually Timex, where you, I think, took your first corner office uh, position. Was that transition tough? Did you find that those players were, you know, as, as uh, structured and as uh, innovative as, as Gillette? Or, you know, was there some uh, changes there in terms of how you thought about that work and and how did you change? I guess you know, particularly from a leadership standpoint, going into those other companies. Yeah, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, every every company has a culture, and every company you know yeah. want people come to work and they want to win. Um, obviously, the 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 biggest change when you come from a, a Gillette or a P and G is that you just don't have the resources or always the talent in every functional area that you're used to. Right. And that's not a right. knock on any of these small companies. It's yeah. just that. You know, they, they don't have the resources and they don't always have that, that process or train with, from within. And in many cases, they have to run a lot leaner. So that was, that was the major, you know, difference where I noticed, you know, I call it the cold splash of water where you, where you go in and you realize, wait a second, I don't have. This isn't Kansas anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then, so the, you know, the, the question is how do you then operate in that type of environment? And in many cases, you know, it's a, it's a balance of. All right. Well, you have to roll up your sleeves. You can't mm. just be the conductor anymore. You have right. to. You have to then, you know, be part of the team, and you have to help. And and the the challenge is, how do you do that without either micromanaging or without doing all the stuff, doing it yourself? And in many cases, it's bringing in a couple of key new hires to to maybe upgrade mm-hmm. talent. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it's just you know setting that vision and strategy so that everybody realizes that you know we're all in this together and we can co- co-create. And, and using a lot of the, the tools that I used back at Gillette and Proctor, but you just have to do it in a smaller scale. So the bigger lesson there is, you know, you have to set priorities. You can't, you have to get complexity out of the system because in a much smaller organization that, that has less resources, you have to focus on those few core things that are going to make you successful. And uh, Timex, that's a real interesting job. We have a couple of common folks that we've known there and others that uh, have also been on the show. Um, great organization, obviously one that's been around for a long time. What, what was the attraction in, in joining Timex at that point in your career? Well, I, I had moved my family from Boston to Connecticut to work for Playtex, and we sold that to a large multinational. And after we sold that company, I started to look at CEO roles and Timex was in Connecticut. Um, interestingly, it's owned by a family out of Norway. And um, I wouldn't have known that. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And yeah. half the businesses were licensed brands. So beyond mm-hmm. brand Timex, uh, we had licensed deals with Ferragamo, Versace, Nautica, and Guess. So a large part of my role there was to, to manage the licensed partners. Yeah. And then also, you know, help set a, a strategy for how we were going to grow the business. And Um, you know, and also, you know, my commitment to the family was to reinvest in brand Timex. So we created a new ad Mm -hmm. campaign. Uh, we looked at a lot of cost savings initiatives to try to reinvest in the brand 
and then also just build the partnerships with these um, large license partners. So in, in any given month, you know, I was in Milan, Italy, working with Donatella Versace, and then had to fly to Wal- Bentonville Walmart to help sell in, you know, the Timex Ironman set. So talk about a broad set of uh, wow. experiences. Yeah, cool. And first time family business, right? To tell us a little bit about how, you know, your leadership kind of style had to change given the, the ownership structure, you know, or, or did it, you know, as it related to your move to Timex? Well, you know, the, the constituent base, you know, expands. So not only do I have to deal with then major customers and suppliers, we were a multinational company with a, a global footprint and we were right. vertically integrated. So that was a that was a new change for me, whereas Playtex was more domestic. Um, and then having to manage a, a family with all their, um, you know, ambitions in terms of a, a, a fiduciary responsibility and making sure that there was a frequent dividend that was paid out to the family mm-hmm. and right. Um, right. communicating to the to the family regularly for um, business updates. So I I, re- I learned early on just about the the importance of you know frequent communication, mm-hmm. transparency, and and that experience really set me up to work in a private equity environment where. You know, there is very much a focus on the numbers and no surprises um, and, you know, regular frequent updates. So I had a I had a Friday call with uh, the, the the chairman of Timex um, to always give an update on the business and results. And that has carried me over to, you know, my private equity career where I always have a frequent yeah. meeting in terms of business updates. So yeah. um, that cadence and, and I guess the drive for details is just something that has been ingrained in me. And, and you know, it's made me able to be much more successful in the environment that I'm in now. goes back to the Mar- Markham days, right? I mean, you, you learned to do that uh, way back when with those all those software engineers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. it's, it's all about yeah. communicating and, and working yeah. with people that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, that don't always have the same background or experience that you do. Tell us about Qualitor Automotive. Now, you've been there, I think, close to eight years, right? And are coming up on it. And um, private equity owned. And for those in our audience that aren't familiar with the company, give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch. Sure. Um, well, we are in the um, the aftermarket auto space. And for aftermarket auto, that means parts that after you buy your car and they've been on the road for several years, um, you would then go to either you know your local repair person or in some cases right. you might do it yourself and you might go to AutoZone or O'Reilly and buy parts for your car. So we have two main business units as Qualitor. Um, one is that we sell wiper blades, so wiper mm-hmm. blades aftermarket. So after you you're, you have a used car that's been on the road for a while, you might go to a Walmart or a Costco to buy wiper blades. And we have the um, license to sell Michelin wiper blades globally. Ah. And we have. Did you uh, sell into the O'Reillys as well and the other types of stores? Uh, most, we're cars? mostly, because of the brand um, and yeah. the advertising that we do, we're mostly what we would call self service. So any, any mass merchandiser or online retailer. Um, we have a predominant distribution. In fact, we have um, Costco, we have the global um, relationship. So we sell cool. Costco US, Costco Canada, and all right. the Costco's around the world. Awesome. And global uh, perspective then, is it is it uh, pretty much equally both inside and outside the US or a predominantly US business? Uh, it's predominantly US, but our yeah. entire supply chain is Asia focused, which yeah. has you know given us some challenges in the last couple of years with the uh, with the global supply chain you know crisis but we are an asset light model and so we bring all of our product lines in uh, to North America and sell primarily to, to North America customers and, and consumers yeah. 
and half of the business is a business to business. So separate from our wiper blades, we sell brake hardware components. Mm. And for if you've not changed your brakes in a while, um, all the things that go around holding in, you know, the, the friction pads are things that we sell. Yeah. So we've got brake hardware kits for just about every car on the road going back to the 60s. And if you were going to change your own brakes on a, on a car, um, you'd have to get our kits to be able to, you know, finish mm. the brake job. And so we sell into AutoZone, O'Reilly, Napa, uh, and pretty much any installer that is going to do a brake job for you. Cool, cool. How many employees worldwide? Uh, we've got about 300, including our yeah. warehouse and semi-automated manufacturing folks. Did they start as a, a, a family-owned business and then move to private equity, or has it been kind of a private equity you know, investment from the beginning? Um, so each business is about 60 years old. And they were all mm-hmm. started by families and eventually right. um, sold to a uh, some type of uh, larger entity that then was spun off to private equity probably 20 years ago. So we're probably on our third private equity ownership now for yeah. each of these businesses. Big change between kind of family-owned business and private equity. Compare and contrast a little bit for us on that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the similarities are the, the focus on results and yeah. making sure that the finances are are adequate and, and, you know, there's regular reporting and, you know, you know, people don't want surprises in these type of businesses. I think for me, the, the benefit of private equity is it's a smaller, more focused board. I've got Mm -hmm. uh, amazing sponsors with my private equity firm and, and we can make decisions, you know, a lot faster where families tend to, you know, I I don't want to say be dysfunctional, but, you know, to get alignment from an entire family is, is a challenge. And so while even each generation, it gets more and more difficult. Exactly. So even though I had a single point of contact, I mean, there were yeah. definitely other members of the family that were influencing some of our business. I, I don't have yeah. to deal with that at all in a private equity right. um, environment. And that's what I love about it. It's like, you know, I've got a direct line to the, to the deal team and an operating partner and we're all focused. And, you know, when, when I have opportunities, I bring it to them. When I have issues, I bring it to them. And, and we very much are a tight working team. And we can make decisions very quickly. If you think of kind of the arc of your leadership style from the early days at Marcom and in Gillette to, to today, what, what's changed and what's stayed the same? Well, I, I think the things that have stayed the same have just been my calm, you know, focused demeanor mm-hmm. and, and the ability to just kind of be nice and authentic and to get things done. You know, whether it's, you know, reporting to the bank that I have to deal with or my mm-hmm. private equity sponsors or my constituents, uh, whether it be, you know, Costco and Walmart or even my, the Michelin organization, you know, it's just getting to know people and, and getting aligned on common objectives and, and common goals and then having frequent communication. Um, as much as the world has changed and is data focused, the world still runs on relationships. Mm-hmm. And I just pride myself on my ability to, to build relationships and nurture them and maintain them. Um, I think, you know, I've always, especially during the pandemic, probably the the biggest leadership tool that I've had to rely on is just that calm demeanor. You know, as much as we're in a drive for results organization and, you know, a, a drive for results, private equity backed situation, um, when things aren't going well, or you've got external challenges like a global supply chain issue, you've got to be able to just show calmness to the organization because they want to know that, that somebody's in charge that is not panicking, that has their back, and that is showing them a vision and a future of how we're going to get out of the situation. 
And, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, I can't guarantee that the, you know, back in, in the second quarter of 2020, I couldn't guarantee that the pandemic was going to be over. And I had <laughs> you know, no idea what the future was going to be like, but I had to at least um, put Tom into the organization and let people know that things were okay. And um, that was probably the, you know, I, I've, I've always had that framework, but yeah. you know, I had to really rely on it, you know, um, much more than I ever had. Um, for the last couple of years. What's different now? What, what, what kind of skills or leadership style that is, is different now from perhaps something you did in earlier career? Well, you know, just from a functional standpoint, I've always been labeled as the marketing innovation guy. Mm-hmm. And probably, you know, the last five or 10 years, I, it's as, I am as much of a finance supply chain operations person than I've ever yeah. been. And, yeah. you know, even for the last couple of years, much more focused on cash management like are we going to be able to pay people because our right. our our container costs are going up 10 times and our labor costs uh, in the United States are not only going up you know twice what they were before the pandemic but you know we can't get people to come into the office so we actually had to do a pivot to move a lot of our um, our labor down to Mexico just because we couldn't wow. get people into you know do our into our facility so So that, that pivot, that ability to kind of make quick decisions is something that, you know, I've really embraced. Whereas maybe in the old days, you know, at Gillette, P&G was much more alignment and, and taking time to make the right decision. Um, You know, I think you want to make the right decisions, but in in this fast paced environment, you have to kind of pull the trigger pretty quickly, much faster than I ever had before in my early days. And, um, you know, I think, as I said, the, 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 the other change is that, as much as you know, in the in the big companies, you have to train and mentor, and and get total organizational alignment. In in a smaller company, and particularly one where, um, you know, the, where you need to make quick decisions, you got to roll up your sleeves and be part of the team. Mm-hmm. And right. you know, do, balancing doing that without you know doing people's jobs, you know, I think is 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 probably the biggest balancing act. And in, in many cases, I'll I'll you know tell people that work for me, you know, don't don't come back three months with a final decision that then we need to kind of reverse or that we kind of need to fine tune. It's okay to come for me, you know, to come to me for help, but you know, it's, it's okay to co-create too. So, you know, here's, here's the assignment that we have, you know, go ahead and, and work on it, but come back to me when it's not fully baked so we can discuss it and then we can come back and then finalize it. And, you know, that's the same approach I have with managing my board. I, I call it the board two-step. You never want to go to your board <laughs> and surprise them the first time. So you kind of want to pre-sell the board and then come back to them with your final recommendation. And that's what I tell, you know, people that work for me. It's like, you know, go ahead and, you know, work on this, but come back and don't, don't come back when it's fully baked because if we have to make changes, it's only going to yeah. take more time to, to make decisions. Get some early involvement, yeah. What do you what do you look for when you're making bets on the people that you invest in and hire at Qualitor, Gary? You know, I well, a couple of things. For me, you know, my my whole framework is about marketing innovation. I'm mm-hmm. I, I, I'm very good at at finance and operations. But when I hire people, depending on the position, you know, in a lot of cases, I'm looking for somebody that complements my skill sets. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, some of my some of my more senior leaders, I've I've sought out folks that have really good commercial set, skill sets. Um, I love going to Walmart. I love going to customers. But you know, at the end of the day, I need people that that eat and breathe sales and understand right. how to how to nurture the customer. So, so in many cases, it's complementing 
complementing my skill set mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and diversifying the team. Um, and in you know most cases, it's just you know hiring people that that are nice and authentic, and that mm-hmm. can get and that can get stuff done. Um, How do you get at that? What, do you have some 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 favorite interview questions you asked? To, um, well, you know the the hardest part is getting. You know, it's the get stuff done because everybody can say that they can get stuff done. But when you're actually when your back's against the wall and 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 how do people do it? So, you know, in a lot of cases, you're you're asking for past behavior on, um, you know, frameworks or program management tools that people have or that they've hired. Um, so in a lot of cases, you, you kind of have to ask, like, you know, what how did you approach the project? How did you track it? What K, what KPIs did you use um, when it was when things were going off? the rails, how did you get them back on? And how did you communicate, you know, the, the variances against, against your plan? Um, you know, and unfortunately a lot of times you just have to get references too, to see whether, you know, people do what they say they're going to do. Right. Right. Well, Gary, we're just about out of time and you've been super generous, but we always have one last question we always ask, and that's what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who maybe has their own eyes on a corner office someday? Um, sure. Um, I guess I'll, I'll, talk about three, you know, three quick areas. So one is, you know, set some goals about what you want to get out of your career, but, but be willing to be flexible. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I couldn't have told you that I'd be working at Qualitor or Timex, but I had my eye set on the prize. So a lot of it is like get experiences versus titles, you know, be willing to, to take some career pivots and, you know, be flexible about the type of jobs that you take. Um, mm-hmm. as long as you're keeping your, your set goal and your eye on the prize. Um, I think number two would be to mentor people and seek mentors and, mm-hmm. and build a network. I, I pride myself on the network and the relationships that I have, um, that really, that like anything else, it has to be nurtured. Um, and, you know, can just continue to build a network and, and, you know, for me, probably the advice would be to do it early, you know, build that network yeah. early yeah. and, you know, with LinkedIn, the, the, you know, you and I didn't have that tool. That's when we right. were starting out. So there's actually right. a tool that allows you to, to, to do that. Yeah. And I guess the third would be, you know, just be nice and be authentic. And, mm-hmm. and that goes a long yeah. way in business. And that, you know, that, that benefited me in my early days and it continues to, to benefit me now. Goes a long way in life as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, Gary Cohen, Chief Executive Officer of Qualitor Automotive, thank you so very much for sharing your story into the corner office. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.